0: Okay, I just got done talking with Jessica. I want to let her introduce herself and tell you a bit about what she's doing before we jump into this conversation.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Jess Morley. I'm a doctoral researcher at the University of Oxford as a member of the Oxford Internet Institute. I sit within the Digital Ethics Lab and also as policy lead in the Data Lab, which is in the university's primary care department. And my research focuses on How can we encourage healthcare systems to make better use of data?
0: So for those of you that don't know, this is Are You A Robot? podcast and videocast. Welcome, thank you for tuning in. We are a series that aims to explore the greatest challenges and the biggest questions that stem from AI and related technologies. The way that we're doing that is we're gathering some of the best and brightest minds in their respective fields, getting them on here to talk with me about how they're doing things, what they are most focused on, concerned about, how they see the world, and if there are any best practices that can come from this. All these conversations do not stop here, so I encourage you, if you like what you're listening to, jump into our Slack community. It's great to see more and more faces coming in, sharing their opinions, asking questions, and really getting a nice pulse on what is happening with AI ethics and AI governance. And last but not least, I want to mention that we have an incredible sponsor, Ethics Grade does AI ethics benchmarking tests. If you are at all interested in getting your company checked out to see how you're doing along the AI governance spectrum, give them a holler. I left a link for that and the Slack community down below. So feel free to click on either of those. And without further ado, let's talk with Jessica all about what is going on with AI and healthcare. Are you a robot? Hello Jessica and thank you for coming on the RUA Robot podcast video cast. I'm really excited to talk to you today about all of the cool stuff you're doing with AI ethics and the NHS and I think that it might be worth starting just at how you got into tech and how you got into AI.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I'm s- super excited to be here. The question of how do I get into tech, I, f- I, I guess I should probably preface it by saying there was never a grand plan. Um, I just followed what I was interested in, and that sort of led me to where I am. Um, but I suppose when I was doing finishing my undergrad uh, degree way back in 2012, I uh, I did my thesis or sort of my final dissertation on the impact of culture, um, the impact of technology on the spread of culture. And after that, uh, after I left, I went straight and worked for the NHS, the local NHS here where my uh, parents live in the clinical commissioning group. And I was supposed to do six weeks worth of work on sort of data analysis, really, about Different ways of commissioning primary healthcare services. So those are the services to do with your general practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up staying there for nearly two years, looking at the use of digital technologies a lot and how you can commission services to be better. Um, I left for a couple of years and did consulting, but looking a lot at fintech at the time. Um, mm-hmm. And that's probably when AI first started to be floated um, in my in my work. We had a lot of big banks sort of saying, oh, how can we make use of better artificial intelligence to, you know, better predict customer behavior? And yeah. at the time, I sort of was like, well, I should learn about this stuff a little bit more. So I did a few self-talk courses in coding just so I could uh, talk the talk as well as walk the walk and oh, nice. also did a lot of volunteering at the time. I sort of did that for about two years, had a millennial crisis about the fact that I was helping big banks make more money, um, mm. and went back to work for the health care service, and I went into the Department of Health and Social Care, so it was in 2018 to or 2017, actually, um, to be the technology advisor and do all sorts of things to do with policy and data and digital and technology and healthcare from a whole load of things like the NHS's use of cloud through to the NHS's, um, the NHS app, not the COVID tracing app, the the other app. uh, And eventually that transpired and transformed into me being the AI subject matter expert for NHSX. But whilst that was all happening... I started to become a little bit concerned about the fact that I didn't feel as though I knew enough about the social implications and the technical implications of the types of technologies we were talking about from a policy mm-hmm. perspective and so I thought, you know what I will go and find out myself. I applied to go back to Oxford initially part-time um, did a MSC in social science of the internet focusing on the use of artificial intelligence in healthcare and now I stayed to do my PhD full-time and I, I left my job in the in policy world to be a policy researcher in the university.
0: Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what I wanted to center this conversation around is this great paper that you wrote uh, talking about why we need AI ethics in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I feel like is really important when we're looking at... Healthcare and the use of technology in it and how it's going to start becoming more and more intertwined with AI. So I'd love for you to give us a bit of an idea right now of where are we with the use of AI in healthcare? Mm.
1: So that's an excellent question. I think the first thing to say is that AI in healthcare is not new. Almost as long as AI itself has been a thing, the idea that we could use it in healthcare ha- has existed. One of the very first research papers on the topic is written in 1954, um, and then clinical decision support, a very form of very basic form of AI, started to be deployed in hospitals. In around the 1970s and took off more in the 1980s. What we tend to be talking about now when people are talking about AI is stuff that's more complex, like machine learning or deep learning, and the greater use of neural networks for things like diagnostics, whether that be image recognition diagnostics or whether it be risk prediction type diagnostics. Uh, So let's have a look at some electronic health records. Let's see what factors are associated with X outcome and see if we might be able to predict what might happen to people in order to move healthcare towards uh, precision and predictive sort of type Mm. care. Uh, I would say where we're at now is there are lots, I mean, lots and lots of really fantastic prototypes and use cases. There is very little large scale use of these types of of technologies in the healthcare system at scale. Mm. So, you might have a proof of concept running in one place, um, you might have a different proof of concept running in a different hospital, but you don't necessarily yet have an algorithmically enhanced care pathway that is used a lot of times in a lot of different places in the healthcare system. Mm. And so, I suppose one of the reasons I look at the ethics, ethical side of things and what I try and do with my research is how do you do that translation piece? So how do I go from really clever scientists over here or data scientists have come up with this great model, how do I actually deploy that in the real-world setting without it causing huge numbers of ethical problems? Um,
0: mm. yeah. yeah, and aside from the technical beast that that is to undertake a huge amount of standardization from mm. all of these little POCs. I really enjoy that you're looking at it as, well, let's make sure everything is ethical and let's see what we're doing correctly. I In your paper, you, you speak about um, many different kinds of ways that we can fall into traps. And one was the difference between like, I and forgive me if I misunderstood this, but there was like a difference between individual and the group. Mm-hmm. Can you break that down a little bit more?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So often the way that healthcare and healthcare protection and healthcare ethics, bioethics are set up is to do with individual level harms. Um, and this is really because it's quite easy to understand. All bioethics have been built up around the idea of what can I, as the clinician, do to this person, the patient who is, in theory, on my operating table at the right time? Uh, You know, have, have I asked them, do I have consent in order to give you this drug? Do they understand what's happening to them if I give them to this drug? What's happening in AI or in really data-driven healthcare at large, is you're moving away from that individual level model, even though healthcare or artificially intelligent healthcare technologies are billed at being personalised and predictive for the person, you're actually looking at group scale effects. Um, so we've seen this a loads during the pandemic, it's a population health crisis. It's a a, rather than an individual health crisis, because the way that we're going to solve it is by looking at who are the groups who are most at risk, how can we protect them. Um, And so it's operating at a group level. And we don't have any ethical codes, really, that work particularly well at protecting the group everything we've built on before, all of our sort of bioethical principles, um, you know, autonomy, non-maleficence, beneficence, justice, are all focused on how do I protect that individual? Not necessarily, how do I protect X group of people who are being discriminated against by this algorithm, because it doesn't diagnose them correctly, because we didn't train it on a data set that matches that group? Does that sort of answer the question?
0: Yeah, that's great. And that idea there, I think you raise a, an incredible point in the paper about how also when you're looking at this from a societal view and determining, okay, it seems like there's more people at risk for this one thing in this zone and so we're going to funnel money into mm. this zone, right? Is, is that what you were breaking down to?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, it's if we if we're looking at you know where where are the biggest healthcare problems and where do we funnel money and where do we devise services and who do we target those services at or, or what's often called in the NHS commissioning where do, which services do we commission? If I only have data on X number or X type of people. I'm only going to know about their health care needs. So I'm only going to commission services for, for them. And I think the example I've used before when to try and make this a little bit more obvious to people is if I'm the health care commissioner and mm-hmm. I walk to work every day and I base my decision on what health care services my population needs based on the types of health care problems I see in that, in that walk to work. So I will see people with mental health issues. I will see people who are homeless. I will see them. Now, when I go into... I no longer do that walk to work. Instead, I make all of my decisions based on a data set that I'm seeing. Quite a few of those people I've seen won't appear in my data set, homeless people being the big one. I won't necessarily appear that see them because they're not generating data points on themselves. And so therefore, do I ignore the fact that these are human beings who still need to be cared for by the healthcare system, but I don't see them in my data. So I don't know that I need to commission a healthcare service that meets their needs. And it's mm-hmm. looking at those Kind of effects um, that I think really needs thinking
0: through. Yeah. And you call for an ethical board, I think, is what an ethical advisory board. Yeah. Uh, maybe you can just walk us through what you feel like. There's this part that you just broke down. What other things would fall under that ethical advisory board? And how would that be? Would that be commissioned straight from the government, or is it a third party that would come in?
1: So I think what we 're trying to do in that in that recommendation is talk about there needs to be a standardized way of doing ethical review and so there is a very very standardized way of doing clinical research ethics reviews um, you know we have we have they're very well established you must get clinical ethics before you do anything it's, we have an authority in the UK that does it called the Health Research Authority um, and you have to apply the the problem that we face now is that that process is very well established for typical medical interventional type clinical Mm -hmm. research, um, randomized controlled trial or anything like that. It's not very well established for I'm going to do big data analytics type projects. And the people in those healthcare systems who are doing those reviews are not necessarily people with the technical understanding um, as to what... That is that is being proposed, and equally, the people who are proposing to do that research are not necessarily people who've come from the clinical from a clinical background. So they also don't know that they're supposed to follow this process, or they don't know the types of harms that could arise. Um, so it's not just the types of population at risks that I was sort of talking about, but there's also. One of the things that we talk a lot about is about autonomy. Do the people who you are treating or diagnosing with this type of technologies understand what is happening to them? Do they understand and do they have the right to say no? For example, I don't want to be diagnosed by by an algorithm. Um, One of the things we talk about is the right not to know. So most, a lot of AI for health is predictive, like I've already said. But is it helpful and useful to a person's mental health, their psychology, their self-sense of being to know all of the things that could go wrong with them and their health in the future if we can't treat it? Uh, So it's thinking through those complexities that we just don't have a standardised framework for doing that, not at least one that's practical and applied that can help researchers and clinical ethicists approve or disprove
0: yeah there you raise some fascinating points in that because there's on one hand it feels like there's a disconnect where the data scientists or whoever's working on the technology side may not be so up to date on this process that you speak of and the people that are knowing about this whole process uh, the clinical process I mean mm. they aren't so savvy with the technical side so to get that be like the glue that helps them mesh uh is is definitely needed and then there's the idea of the standard framework that you speak of and i looked at it and i'm all for a standardization of this framework i feel like it's very needed Mm. and it's a necessity as we move forward because like you said i mean in clinical trials, there's a reason why we don't have people going out trying to make clones, right? Well, except for maybe that time. Maybe they are. But there's a reason why in the UK, people aren't going out and trying to make clones. Mm -hmm. Um, Other places in the world, who knows? But the idea there is very strong. You have to have this framework to follow. And I look at the framework that that you propose and I also saw like I think about the way that technology moves and the culture around technology and how everyone likes to say oh it's got to be cutting edge it's got to go fast it's I just wonder if you feel like those two could coexist because if every machine learning model that was going to go out into production had to go through this framework Mm -hmm. do you feel like it would happen do you feel like people would be on board for that
1: yeah so i think we should we should state quite clearly that i think sometimes when i talk to technologists or innovators they get super worried about oh why did you bring the ethicist along you know that they're just (laughs) going to be the party people they'll just say no to everything but Opportunity cost is an ethical risk in and of itself. If we have opportunities to save lives, improve people's health, um, improve health outcomes, improve the experience of care, we should absolutely explore all of the possible opportunities for do, for doing that. Um, and so, you do very much need to find a balance between, uh, you know, that those types of risks between making sure you've thought through the implications versus saying no immediately and putting loads of bureaucracy in place. We have The problem is at the moment we haven't found that balance. So there are mm. loads of things that are deployed. Like if you go in the app store, for example, just your bog standard app store and look at the number of apps that are available for health, the vast majority of which have not been through any form of regulatory mm. service. And yet they are out there for people to use. And the risk with that is that as soon as we have a case, a legal case, a big legal case, when someone takes the, a, an app, an algorithm to court to say I'm charging you with medical negligence, uh-huh. that will cause a chilling effect and you know we'll lose, we'll hit that opportunity cost because people will stop investing in the development of those technologies. So the, there is a need to get to the point where we protect that from happening and that's why if you provide a framework, a loose a loose one, in the same way that clinical ethics works now, that's never stopped the development of new drugs, new devices, we've managed to make it work, then you, you manage to find that balance by providing a loose enough framework that th- makes people think about the could versus should. And that's really all I'm saying at the moment is we need to think through could versus should. And then there are ways of dealing with the level of bureaucracy that's involved. For example, there's no real reason why we can't do real-world evidence and evaluation. So have things that are deployed, have things that run in pilots, um, and monitor them as they go on for us learning about the ethical issues, as long as we know how to turn them off. But, so the the main problem we have right now is we don't have the framework to ask could versus should. We have Uh hundreds of different ways of thinking about ethics, which just allows people to ethics shop. Oh, I'll take a little bit of this one. I'll take a little bit of this one. I'll take a little bit of this one. And then we have no way of monitoring these things once they're live and no way of turning them off. Um, And we have got to put some things in each of those categories to stop the chilling effect and the closing down of harm once it does happen, because it will.
0: Well, I think what you mentioned there is such a strong point, this idea that right now it's very much the wild, wild west and you can have companies out there doing whatever they want and then claiming they're ethical because they've taken from, oh, well, a little ethics here, a little bit there. Yeah, we're ethical. And we don't really know what is behind the curtains. So that point is is really that just struck me pretty hard there. Uh, I I thank you for that. Now, I want to change gears a little bit and I want to go into the idea of what you were talking about with the right to know. Mm -hmm. And aside from the fact that we should be able to say yes or no, I want to be diagnosed by an algorithm or I would like to speak to a real human... I also wonder and this is something that's come up time and time again on this podcast a few times even is do you feel we should be obligated to give our data to the NHS or to a health service if it is going towards creating if it is, if it's going for the greater good we could say
1: yeah so this is a this is a really long ranging debate um in healthcare as to whether healthcare data is an individual good or a public good. Yeah. Um and therefore who has the who has the right to benefit from it. And with medical data, as in the data that you're generated by when I go to the doctors, I go create a code that says, I saw the doctor, they gave me X antibiotics, fine. That has quite good controls in place as to how you use it and how do you balance this good public good versus individual level good. Um, So normally, in the UK at least, it is the individual's right and you consent to whether it's shared for medical research purposes and whether it's shared for planning purposes. And then we have laws in place, like the one that's currently in place right now, for in the state of a public emergency, you say actually all data sharing is effectively turned on because it is for the greater good. So for healthcare data, those frameworks are really quite well established for sharing within the public sector. They're not very well established for sharing with private companies. As we have already seen in the UK, that's why um, Google and the Royal Free, uh, DeepMind and the Royal Free, that got in trouble with the ICO, happened because they had different interpretation of direct care. You can always share data for the purposes of direct care. Um, Both DeepMind and the Royal Free were under the impression that they were developing an app that helps with people, provide people with direct care. The ICO, so the data protection officer said, no, um, you didn't use the word of direct care. So there are really confusing barriers with with private companies. Um, And then it gets even more complicated when we start talking about data that isn't necessarily medical data, but it is health data.
0: Yes. Uh,
1: what Data that we might refer to as data on what's so-called your social determinants of health, uh, Fitbit data. How much mm-hmm. do you move? What do you eat? What are you buying in the supermarket? Um, how much do you weigh? Do you smoke? Do you drink? All of these things, what kind of air quality are you exposed to? All of these mm-hmm. things have a massive impact on your health. Um, we don't have anything to say that they should be provided back to to the NHS. And so we're starting slowly, there's no need to panic, but we're starting to see this this picture build up where some private companies, Apple in particular, Amazon will definitely get involved at some point, uh, are going to have hugely rich data sets on people's health. Um, And they may start to out-compete the public healthcare sector, because they actually collect data on more points and more frequently than their NHS healthcare system does, and about more aspects about the person's lives. Um, I think you can make an argument to say that actually that is useful for the the general public and for population health coverage, we should be able to match those two data points, we should be able to make them talk to each other. And the, the public system, so the NHS, should have access to that data provided people have been given the opportunity to say yes I consent to this um, because all research that has ever been done shows quite consistently that people are generally quite happy for their data to be shared if it is for the purposes of medical research. You know if if I've gone and had a cancer scan I want that cancer scan to be used by the cancer registries and to be provided to research companies for cancer research because ultimately it will benefit me as much as it benefits everyone else. Um, But what we need to do is start asking difficult questions about, okay, so we've largely tackled these problems for medical data. How do we tackle them for social health data? And how do we make sure that data that is contributed at a population level because we're all using our smartphones on a day-to-day basis, is used to benefit the population as a whole and not just a very small group of people um, who Apple, for example, might decide to do health research on. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And one thing that I think about, you make some valid points there. And I want to get back to Amazon in a moment because that was another question that I had for you. But the idea here that you speak of on these companies mm. not competing against each other. I mean, the NHS, the public versus the private, like like Apple or Amazon, they aren't competing. They're helping each other. Mm. And the thing that I worry about is that the laws for how, like you said, or not just the laws, but the ethical mindset of a company like Amazon Mm. is going to take that data and who knows what they're going to do with it, right? So the NHS, maybe I can be on board with, like you said, that most people, if they sign off On clinical data. Yes, you can share this. I want, because I think about that and I say, yes, like if this is going to help someone else know something about cancer or be able to, you know, help the fight against cancer, Mm -hmm. we could say, then I definitely want to be a part of that if it's just as easy as sharing that I got this x ray. Yeah. Then as soon as it goes into, well, Amazon knows that I order. Doritos, and they know that I live in this place and that I spend this much time on Amazon Prime every week, and all of that information. I am okay to share it with the NHS, but then what I really am afraid of is that it gets shared to my insurance company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's because the NHS. If they're going to be doing clinical research with that, and they're saying, okay, well, you know, people like Demetrios who spend X amount of time on uh, on Amazon Prime and do this and live in places like this, all those data points that you were speaking of, that's fine if it helps again against the fight in cancer. But it's not cool if all of a sudden my insurance premium raises forty bucks because they're like, well, you've been spending a lot of time watching Amazon Prime lately. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering about that, like how does that whole thing come into play and the sharing of data, right? The sharing of data from Amazon to NHS is cool, but Amazon to other people that will probably pay a hefty amount for it is not so cool.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think... Then, really, the focus then is is on data sharing. So, I think we have to, to think about this really, really carefully about how do those data flows work, and how do we how do we create infrastructure that that stops some of these concerns that we're talking about Uh, i think this is one of the problems i often have with with ethical discussions the reason things don't necessarily move is because we often have these really high level concept conceptual type of conversations what does privacy mean um Mm. what 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 does it mean if it's ethical to share with this provider versus that provider um but we never move into con into like concrete things that that we can do um Whereas there are concrete things that that we can do. Uh, so, for example, during the pandemic, one of the things that the team I work within in the data lab in the University of Oxford is built is called an analytics platform called Open Safely, and Open Safely is an analytics platform for electronic health records. Uh, it works, and I want to talk through the whole details of the technical design. But the EHR data, the most disclosive private data, stays where it is. We, we have access to it, but the data never moves. We run the code, send the code to the data and get the results mm-hmm. back. Um, you can test that your code works on dummy data. And very, very importantly, there is a full audit log of who has accessed the data and for what purpose. Okay. You know, if we were to start building models like that, that allow us to not move and share data in huge volumes so that it's not in multiple places at once, so that it stays where it is, it stays under the control of a trusted provider, that it can be used for medical research purposes um, and that we know who has touched it and when and why and we can very, very clearly shut off access to insurers, XX, then that will help. What it doesn't help is... If that information or what's often called inferences, what do we do about inferences? So if I then have, as a medical researcher, I've done all of this really cool research, it helps cancer, etc. But I've also published a paper that says people with pink hair and blue eyes who wear blue clothes are at an increased risk of X disease. That inference, is freely available for an insurer to take. And they have never mm. taken, the, taken the data. They've just taken the information that was derived yes. from, from the data. Um, how we control that type of thing is, is very complicated um, and is, is a much bigger conversation around data ethics. And this is partly why I was saying right at the beginning of this conversation, we don't have any mechanisms in place to prevent those kind of population or group-level inferences. We only have things in place that protect me and my personal data and me, my personal physical self, Um, and we really need them.
0: Do you see it as, I mean, I think about most people, everyone knows that smoking is bad for you, right? That's an inference that we've had over years of data, It wasn't an algorithm that gave us that, Mm -hmm. but it was humans that worked that out, right? And are you saying that the inferences are going to become public knowledge? Like, oh, if you eat this food, this is... It's going to give you... You have a higher risk of of getting cancer. And then because the algorithm figured that out, that is public knowledge now? Mm -hmm. And so then the insurance companies are going to start asking you when you go in to get your checkup, do you eat this food? Or they're going to start looking for signs of you eating this food or living in a certain place that has more smog or whatever it may be. So, yeah, that's that's an interesting one to grapple with.
1: Yeah, and then what, what becomes even more complex on top of that is that who benefits the most in that, in that scenario? People who generate loads of data on themselves and know that there's loads of data everywhere and people are doing research on them. Um, and yes, it might mean that it gets taken into account with an insurance premium. Do they benefit because they will have more accurate insurance? Or do the people who exist, quote unquote, off the grid and generate mm. a lot less data about themselves and have a lot less research Um, done on them or people like them, it's never on them themselves. Are they the benefiters? Because the insurer will know less about them and so can make less inferences, but might put a higher premium on them because they know less about them and can predict less about them and that the inference is less accurate. We we don't know.
0: And so do you foresee this, like in your eyes, how would we go about fixing that? Is it just Creating a law that insurance companies can't do things like that? Or?
1: I think it has all got to come down to thinking about things from a justice perspective and a fairness perspective, um, and the perspective of the social determinants of health. So, one of the things we, we've published more recently is this idea that the infosphere, so the informational environment within which you operate, is socially determining your health. If I if I exist in a poorer infospherical environment, my health outcomes are going to be worse than someone who lives in a higher quality infospherical environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm not necessarily saying I have all the answers to all of these things. I don't know whether a single law would fix it, but I think what needs to be shifted in policymakers' heads and legal in legal lawmakers' heads is that switch. Um, And to start thinking about, okay, I have to think about how this operates at a population level um, and how do I protect against those things uh, and make appropriate decisions on that basis.
0: Yeah. And on one hand, I I see the point of
1: Mm.
0: if I'm an insurance company and I know that I'm going to have to be spending more money on someone, I... It's only right for me to be charging them a higher pur- premium, because I can see into this crystal ball and say, yeah, the things are not looking good. So in X months, we're probably going to be shelling out some cash. Mm-hmm. So I can see that point of view, and it's uh, but it's a really slippery slope. When you start realizing, I think, and this is what it comes back to to me, when you realize that machine learning and AI right now, it messes up all the time. Mm -hmm. And if we are having things such as our premium determined by an AI algorithm then how can we be sure that it is making the correct decision yeah. and i i think you you break this down in your paper really well too on the training biases that you you run into and uh maybe we could just touch on that for a moment too
1: yeah absolutely so in the paper, we talk about the different categories of ethical risks um, that stem from epistemic, so the, 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 the nature of knowledge itself. And we talk about misguided, inconclusive and inscrutable evidence. And this is really the problem that you you have just raised, is evidence might be Generated or insights might be generated on very poor quality data. It might be incomplete. Um, In medical data, we have lots of issues with things that are not recorded consistently. Um, BMI is one, it's not recorded very consistently. Ethnicity is another one. In about 25% of electronic health records, there's no ethnicity code. Um, So there are gaps. There's then also a problem that's called censorship. Um, which is in things like medical trials data, there's no follow-up. People drop out of the study. So we know what happened to them up to a point and then we don't know what happened to them afterwards. And so there are really big inconsistency problems with data in healthcare. There are then also very big problems with biases in healthcare data. If we're talking about genetic data, for example, I can't remember the exact figure, but the vast majority of data that we hold in the world on genetics is on Caucasian Europeans. And Uh. so we start thinking about that. And if I'm then making decisions and training my algorithm on that data, it's going to start coming up with wacky things that only work on one place. Um, It starts to come back to this point I made as well at the very beginning about the fact that we have lots of proofs of concepts. If I train a model in an inner-city London hospital and then I try and deploy that exact same model in a rural hospital in North Yorkshire, my populations I'm training that model on are not going to match. And yet, we don't have in place yet, although there is a recognition that it needs to happen, a step in place that says, I need to validate, verify and evaluate the efficacy of this algorithm before it is deployed in the place in which I'm planning, planning to deploy it. So those are the sort of inconclusive or misguided conclusions that can happen based on poor quality data. The other aspect that we raise is the inscrutability aspect. So this idea, sometimes people refer to as the black box or or whatever, this idea that I don't know what has happened. So I don't know how that algorithm made that decision. And therefore, is it actually the right type of decision that it has made or the right type of output that it has made. And if I am a clinician and I'm supposed to act on the decision or the information that the algorithm has given me, but I can't query it to know whether this is actually justified, do I take that decision on board if it contradicts my opinion as a medical person? Or do I disregard it? What, What do I do? But we have no way of Investigating what has happened with that algorithm in that moment of time. And it all comes down, ultimately, all of these questions come down to design decisions. And we need to move to a world where we have in place better design blueprints, for want of a better phrase, that gives people guidance and developers how to pro ethically design from the beginning so that these considerations are taken into account.
0: Yeah that's a huge point. The a blueprint, a design would help immensely, mm. right? And I think that is the th- one of the hardest things. It's such a challenge because there are so many use cases mm. for what we're doing not just with within the medical field. I think there's also you you have the algorithm that predicts if a someone someone's going to show up for their appointment or not, right? So these kind of things are very, very difficult to grapple with and what the design principle should be. Yeah. And I, I think about this, the holes in the data, the medical data, and how would it not then be useful to have the data of... Their lives, right? That they're, they're it's getting collected by Fitbit and Apple and Amazon and all of that. Is there, do you feel like there's going to be some kind of call or some kind of regulation that will force these companies to give the data to the NHS? Or uh, I guess I mean, that, that also wouldn't be so ethical. <laughs>
1: well, so. That there's a little bit like asking me, can I predict the future? But if we, I think there is a greater recognition, increasingly, that there is a need for that these two data sets or these different types of data to be able to talk to each other, and that it would mm-hmm. be beneficial for the healthcare system, as a whole, to have a better idea about how people are living their lives. And if we look at what happened in financial services a few years ago. There was a piece of legislation that's called PSD two or Payment Savers Services Directive two, and that effectively said, um, and it was all it was implemented in the wake of the financial crisis and wanting to give people better control over their finances. And it said, if I am a Lloyds Bank customer and I also have an account in Barclays, in Barclays, and I want to be able to see both of my accounts in one place, so I want to be able to see how much money I have in my Barclays account and how much money I have in my Lloyds account, I can ask, as in my Lloyds app, I can ask the Barclays app to send the data to the Lloyds app via Mm -hmm. an API. And effectively, the legislation said that banks cannot block that data being shared provided that the individual has consented to the sharing. Um, And... I think there's a powerful argument to be made that we need PSD2 for health. So if I want my medical record to also include the information I have in my Fitbit app or my Apple Health app, I should have the right to say I consent to that information going via read-write API into, into my medical record. Um, because it's not just about the types of issues that we've discussed thus far. There are also more sinister applications. Like if we think about um, uh, opioid addiction, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a big problem with opioid addiction. It's potentially bigger in the States than it is in the UK, but it, it exists. One of the ways that people get hold of opioids, which are a highly controlled drug, is by going to online pharmacies. Online mm-hmm. pharmacies do not have a continuous record of what drugs you have had in the past. Um, and your GP does not necessarily get the information that you have ordered opioids from X online pharmacy. I think we probably should be saying that online pharmacies, online GPs, um, you know, whatever that be, Babylon or whoever, should be forced by law to provide that information back to the medical record so that your complete medical record is as complete as possible. Um, And so that sort of API type legislation, I think, needs to come. I think the realisation that it needs to come is happening. It's hard, because I don't think it's clear in the way that UK laws or responsibilities are set up, who's responsible for putting that in place, because the level of coordination required is huge. Like, is that a healthcare decision? But healthcare decisions healthcare authorities do not normally make laws regarding commercial providers. Is it something like the the Department of Digital, um, DCMS, uh, but they don't deal with health? Is it the Department of uh, AI? Is it the Office for AI? Are they the people who's responsible? Nobody really knows. And so it sort of exists in this grey space, which I think is potentially blocking some of these developments from happening. Through no one's fault, it's just the design of the system.
0: Uh Yeah, so the idea there then being that it's like, it's reached a a point where people see the need for it, but no one is leading the way Mm. and trying to make it happen yet. Yet. And yeah, yeah, one thing that I was also going to ask you about is how, with that data sharing, mm-hmm. and I really appreciate the metaphor of the financial APIs and that's why you have all these fintechs popping up and they're doing a great job at letting us get more information and insight in our financial lives. Why do we not have that yet for our health, for which is exactly. more important, yeah. right? Exactly. And, uh, and so I wonder on this, this idea how that can be done like when you say that i instantly hear in my head uh, this api sharing of data all of that i instantly hear like ooh a lot of people aren't going to like that
1: mm-hmm.
0: right so like how can you put that into place in a way that is transparent and trustworthy
1: so i think that all comes down to having public conversations um, with lots of diverse groups of people right from the start that the idea happens. Not once you've already decided to do it, um, Mm. and you should be willing to drop the idea as well. If the the public acceptability test completely fails, then you should just go, okay, we failed the public acceptability test, we won't push forward. Um, But I think by and large with these types of things, People are sensible. They just don't like to not be told. They don't like yeah. to be only given at the end point the opportunity to say um, yes or no and be presented with a huge amount of terms and conditions that they, that they don't understand. Um, I think if you, know, you explain the narrative to people, why, does this, why is this useful? Why, why would I want to do this? How, how might it help me? And have those conversations proactively... Uh, which we do see now more um, through organisations like Understanding Patient Data. They do really great work. There's a big campaign called Hashtag Data Saves Lives um, on, on social media that helps these conversations happen. Um, oh, nice. It's through that engagement activity. But I also think what we don't do very well, and we probably should, is move towards having... We We tend not to future-proof ourselves very well. With these types of conversations and with these types of developments, we tend to focus very specifically on the one question in hand. And as soon as that solution outdates itself, we have to start again. There is a different way of engaging the public or publics around conversations like this that's more to do with red lines. So establish where we definitely don't want to go um, with, with types of things. And then know, right, those are the parameters I'm operating within. I can design things specifically and work on more specific questions, but I know where my edges are. Um, And with AI, those kind of red lines I'm talking about, uh, what are the tasks in healthcare that I never think, society never thinks is acceptable to be delegated to an algorithm and should in fact, that task should always be conducted by a human. Um, and continuously engage on these types of big macro questions rather than react once the idea has appeared. Um, then then there are more technical things you can do in terms of transparency and um, making it public about what is happening. But it's the proactiveness that we don't do well yet and we should.
0: Yeah, and playing inside the boundaries. You know, this yeah. is definitely off limits. So mm. this is our our field that we're going to be able to play in and not only with the what we want the algorithm to do but also how we're going to be sharing the data who's going to have access to it because i would love for myself personally if i could have as much information on everything that i do you know how much time i spend on the computer how much time i stand i spend standing up what i eat every week if i could have all that information i would love to have it but I would not want the police department to have it. Yeah, exactly. So there's these things where I think that's probably the scariest piece in most people's minds is that, yes, it is Big Brother, right? It's Big Brother completely. We already have it out there. We're putting it out there with, and it's very dispersed, but can we bring it all into one place safely and securely and know that it's not going to get tapped into by uh, the people that we don't want Mm -hmm. looking at it? So that's, that's something that I think about quite a bit is are we going to be able to A, in a point in time, know when and how our data is being used across the internet and if there are machine learning algorithms that are being trained on our voice or on our uh, xyz whatever kind of data you want to you are putting out there on our, our photos on facebook then is there ever going to be a point in time where i will be notified or i will have something like uh i i talked with a man named Robbie Wortham and he was talking about like a a digital AI security guard because of this very point that there are a lot of bad actors and you want to know with the most transparency and the most clearly that you can how your data is being used and how it's being shared and then the other piece of this is that people make a lot of money off of your data and so that's where I th- I start to think wow okay if there's a lot of money that's being made here from from this data then you can't help but have bad actors come in that are looking at the bottom line instead of looking at what is morally right. Yeah. So it's
1: completely. And I think this is absolutely why we have got to move to a model where we proactively plan for the worst-case scenario instead mm. of waiting for the worst-case scenario to hit us in the face and then go, what do we do about it? Which is largely what we've done thus far. Yeah. Um, and I, I just think that that is the, the, the only way forward. Um, sometimes in sort of technology studies, there's this concept called the Colling Ridge Dilemma, and the Colling Ridge Dilemma states that before, when something is new and it's emerging, we don't have enough data on how it's going to impact in order to do something about it. And then by the time we have enough information on what it's going to do, it's too late to change it. Um, And I think this is not true. Um, And I think having that idea is dangerous because Mm -hmm. people, it allows policymakers, it allows technologists to use it as an excuse um, to say, oh, well, yes, these bad things could happen, but also these really good things could happen. Um, And Why don't we kind of just see what does happen? Instead, we should start going, right, we know it could go through here. We've seen this enough times now. Let's just get real and make sure we are proactively making sure that that doesn't happen.
0: Yeah, at least putting some guardrails on.
1: Exactly, put the guardrails up. Yeah,
0: And yeah, it's funny you say that because it reminds me of the... I spoke with um Zachary about the movie The Social Dilemma mm. and I don't I imagine you've seen it but the funny thing was is how he talked about everyone came in front of the camera and they said we had no idea it was going to get like this we how could we have known it would be like this and he, his argument was well maybe read a book yeah. <laughs> and You'll be able to see like history repeats itself. Look at what's happened in the past, and you can have an idea at least. You can't, then you can't come in front of us and say, we had no idea it was going to be like this, right? So that's that's a huge point.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, um, I think sometimes with that, sometimes people want to make out, um, you know, that Mark Zuckerberg is like Dr. Frankenstein. He 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 built the monster, but then the monster did what it did. And he, uh-huh. uh, but it's like, okay, but why did nobody tell him in the first place not to build the monster? Yeah, like we we probably could have foreseen that 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 was going to happen. Um, exactly. So yeah, totally.
0: Exactly. Well, Jessica, this has been an incredible conversation. I really appreciate you sitting down with me here in. The last hour, I feel like I've, I've been able to learn so much from you and it, you have a way of putting things together and opening up different avenues of how I look at things. So I really want to thank you for that and uh, for everyone listening. If you are not in our Slack community, I encourage you to get in it. We are continuing all these conversations and that's all we got for now. Thanks again, Jessica.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Cheers.